Welcome to Biblical Foundations, a podcast of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm your co-host, Jimmy Rowe, along with Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Join us as we discuss issues in biblical scholarship for the church. Well, uh, I'm very grateful uh, to both of you, uh, Roger and Andy, that we can have this conversation on a very important but often neglected topic today. I've been interested in biblical chronology for some time now, uh, especially with regard to my work on John's Gospel. As a matter of fact, it was uh, Harold Honer of Dallas Seminary years ago who persuaded me of 33 A.D. as the date for Jesus' crucifixion uh, way back on, uh, over a cup of tea at Tyndall House in Cambridge. Uh, now, before we get into some of the details, uh, can both of you, uh, maybe starting with Andy, first give our listeners a general sense of uh, who you are and, and also why the study of biblical chronology uh, is important for correct interpretation of Scripture? Okay, um, yeah, I'm a distinguished professor of theology and Hebrew at Concordia University mm -hmm. uh, in Chicago. Uh, actually in the suburb of River Forest. Uh, and I've been studying off and on biblical chronology for uh, at least 20 years. Um, and I, you know, I've become somewhat of an expert in certain areas of biblical chronology. I'm sure there are others who know more about other areas, and certainly there are areas that Roger knows better than I do. Mm -hmm. But uh, in general, I've done that, and I've published a book on biblical chronology called From Abraham to Paul, uh, which lays out how I view uh, the events and, and uh, of the Bible and how they fit into a unified chronology and the arguments that I present in favor of one view over another for individual chronological events. Absolutely. And your primary area of expertise, would you say, is, is Old Testament and Old Testament chronology? Yes, uh, although, you know, my book does cover all the way through Paul, so right. I've done a great deal of work in New Testament chronology, but I'm by no means a New Testament expert. Sure, sure. And, and Roger, tell us a little bit about yourself and your interest in biblical chronology. Well, I have been interested in biblical chronology for a long time. I became a Christian at age 23 under the ministry of Jim Packer and Dick Lucas in Oxford. Mm. My undergraduate degree in physics is from um, Reed College in Portland, Oregon, and I have a BA and MA in mathematics from Oxford. I was mm. saved by well, Oxford, like I mentioned. I, my field, however, I went to I went into was computers, and when I retired from IBM in 2003, I began to really consider writing in the field of biblical technology. It was a big help that I studied biblical languages for two years at the and theology at the Nazarene Theological Seminary in Kansas City. Mm -hmm. And I continued my interest, especially in Hebrew. And so when I retired in 2003, I began to write. My very first article was accepted by none other than Dr. Andreas Kirstenberger. <laughs> and we, so Imagine that. that was encouragement. Yes, wonderful. Well, um, let's talk a little bit then, Professor Steinman, about... Uh, you know, the question, why is the study of biblical chronology important, especially for those of us who are uh, interested in, in a correct interpretation of Scripture? Well, chronology is important in the first place because it helps us understand the events that are being related. Um, 
people often talk about chronology as the backbone of history. And if we don't get our chronology right, then understanding the history and the setting of events uh, is skewed and we just don't get it right. Um, we also need to be aware of the bigger theological picture. Mm -hmm. uh, we should note that accurate chronology is important in relationship to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Christian faith is dependent upon God working in history to redeem the world. And any historical claims of the scripture, including claims about chronology, are vital to the gospel witness mm -hmm. uh, to Christ. Um, and we would hope that this would be something that uh, the listeners to this podcast uh, would especially uh, take to heart. Uh, when inaccurate or erroneous chronological conclusions are allowed to stand, it invariably will lead to questions about the truthfulness of the Bible's witness. Uh, and this relates to the, uh, for instance, the reigns of the kings of Israel and Judah, and even more so to the life of Jesus. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Uh, and the Bible is is very concerned about chronology, and we can contrast this with other scriptures of other religions. For instance, uh, Bhagavad Gita, Gita, excuse me, a sacred text of the Hindus, doesn't you know really even um, come close to uh, getting right the events it describes. And indeed, for Hindus, it's not important mm -hmm. whether those things happen. But God's revelation in the Bible is about real events and real times. Uh, the Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer wrote widely on this question. The Bible describes real events that happened in real space at real times in the past. It's not a myth superimposed on imaginary events or on distorted accounts of what might have started as real events. Yeah, that's so true. And, uh, Roger, anything you'd like to add? Yes, indeed. Uh, one aspect of biblical chronology that is often overlooked is that it gives us a kind of mathematical check on whether the Bible is true. Mm. In that regard, consider the complex chronological data that Andy and I deal with and that the Bible gives for the Hebrew kingdom period. This information is found in books of First and Second Kings, Second Chronicles, and the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. There are about 126 exact specifications in these books that chronologists use to determine the times of reign of all the kings of Judah and Israel. An example of one of those 126 exact specifications is 1 Kings 15, verse 9, quote, In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa became king of Judah, and he reigned in Jerusalem 41 years, unquote. Mm -hmm. When you put all 126 of these exact specifications together, they form a sort of gigantic logic puzzle. Mm -hmm. Now, my wife likes to work logic puzzles. And they usually have from eight to 20 clues. If you change any one of these clues, the logic puzzle usually breaks. It becomes unsolvable. It will not work. Wow. Here in the Bible, we have 126 clues that give us chronology of the Hebrew kingdom period. The work of Edwin Tila and those who followed him showed that all 126 clues fit together to give us the true chronology of the time. The biblical chronology matches with events that can be securely dated in Assyrian and Babylonian history and has even been used to correct some of those dates. This is a result that was completely unexpected by the so-called higher critics. Mm. The accuracy of the Bible throughout this 350-year period of the Hebrew kings does not prove that the Bible is accurate everywhere else, but it is consistent with a doctrine of Scripture called inerrancy. So in one area of history in which the statements can be thoroughly tested, those statements have been shown to be correct. 
This result is contradictory to the prevailing critical view that most of the Old Testament was written much later than the events described and was made up by pious frauds who were inventing history in order to teach the oh, very truth. Interesting. Now, it's interesting that a week ago today, a Christian geologist that I knew called me to discuss a chronological matter. Now, he's involved in the study of varves, if you know what those are. Mm-hmm. Varves are mud ears in the Dead Sea Basin. Studying the pattern of those varves, which are laid down nearly, can show whether major events, when they occurred, like an earthquake or a drought, when those things took place. One of his published findings has to do with an earthquake that in the region that can be dated fairly precisely to about AD 33. The year of the crucifixion. And of course, you know what that makes us think of. Mm. Skeptics say all those signs didn't happen when Christ was crucified. One comment he made, this geologist friend said, was kind of interesting to me. He said that the work of Edwin Keeler ensuring that the chronological data of the Hebrew kingdom period were accurate should be counted as the second most impressive find of the 20th century biblical scholarship, second only to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, if the conclusion for importance is how much an archaeological or other finding illuminates our understanding of the Bible and verifies that the Bible is to be trusted in historical matters, I would tend to agree with him. Yes, I, I think it's just incredible uh, what you mentioned about the, uh, uh, the external confirmation of the year of the crucifixion. That's fascinating. I think that's a good example of uh, how uh, fields such as uh, uh, geology or or other uh, disciplines can can help us in in this area. I remember when I visited uh, the uh, Dead Sea area years ago, seeing some of the uh, um, you know breaks and in, in staircases and so forth that that uh, are signs of of earthquakes and that that archaeologists can take with uh, a high degree of of confidence, but you know what I would like to pick up on Roger and and Andy is the uh, Roger mentioned uh, you know the higher critics on the one hand, and then uh, those uh, who believe in biblical inerrancy on the other. So be- before we turn to uh, some of those uh, important chronological issues that you've already uh, briefly touched on, Roger, let's let's talk about uh, underlying worldview issues first, because I think. These kinds of issues are important presuppositions on the part of those who engage in the study of biblical chronology in the first place. So what would you say is the primary difference between a critical approach to biblical chronology and one that is based on a high view of Scripture? Well, I think we'd say that the principal thesis of biblical skepticism of the documents that comprise the Bible were written later and very often much later than the events they describe, and this makes them largely pious imaginations of a glorified past with little real historical reliability. Mm-hmm. Uh, a particular a- uh, example of this attitude is the uh, non-conservative scholars uh, have had towards chronological data referring to the Hebrew kingdoms. Um I have a few examples from uh, older past leading scholars in this higher critical view. For instance, Samuel and Jeffrey Driver said, uh, quote, since, however, it is clear on various grounds that these synchronisms are not original, any attempt to base a chronological scheme on them may be disregarded. 
That's the end of the quote. And we could multiply this. Um, a, a later scholar, Cyrus Gordon, said the numerical errors in the Book of Kings have defied every attempt to ungarble them. Mm. These errors are largely the creation of the editors. The editors did not execute the synchronism skillfully. So there are just two examples, and we could multiply the quotes uh, where they simply don't believe it is, is reliable. Okay. In one sense, the difference between these scholars and our approach to biblical chronology is a matter of presuppositions. The scholars I've just cited had presuppositions that were based in some part on evolutionary theories of Charles Darwin that were popular in the late 19th century, and that if everything else evolved, then our understanding of God must have evolved also. And these scholars then supposed an evolutionary development of the Bible where the ideas of monotheism were not fully understood until about the 6th century BC or later. And so most of the Bible was written after that time as a kind of pious forgery to retroject back into previous eras. These supposed late-date authors then, according to the critics, attributed many things to a a semi-legendary figure like Moses. Our approach, however, has been to give the Bible a benefit of the doubt and see if we can make sense of the history it relates, including its chronology. This approach can be called an inductive approach, and it's resulted in repeated successes that were not anticipated by those who took the other approach of imposing philosophical presuppositions on the data. For those familiar with the scientific method, starting with the data is the scientific method, is contrasted with starting with somebody's theory and then imposing that theory on the data. The approach of the so-called higher critics has been to start with a theory and then declare as erroneous any data that disagrees with their theory. You know, that is, I think, so important for our listeners to understand that those larger worldview issues uh, that are not always uh, stated up front uh, tend to have a huge influence on on sometimes the uh, the skeptical outcome uh, on part of some of those scholars. Often it is that uh, evolutionary uh, model that is underlying the, you know, what people might call comparative religions approaches or history of religions approaches, and and they would they would look as as scripture is merely reflecting a the development and the emergence of, of religious consciousness in in Israel, and and for the most part, they would really uh, not view scripture as in any sense the word of God or as revelation. So no wonder uh, they have different explanations as to, you know, when they allege errors, uh, especially when it comes to biblical chronology uh, in scripture. But uh, maybe that's enough of covering the more skeptical uh, or critical, at least critical or even unbelieving approach. Why don't you... uh, Roger, please uh, point us to a better, uh, more constructive way of engaging in the study of biblical chronology. You've already briefly mentioned the name Edwin uh, Thiele in your previous response. Why don't you tell us about his vital contribution to the study of biblical chronology? Well, Edwin Thiele was a Seventh-day Adventist scholar, and he went against the grain of the higher critical approach to the Scriptures when approaching the historical data of the Bible. He was particularly interested in the naughty problems of the Hebrew kingdom period that we have just mentioned. And rather than starting with presuppositions like the higher critical school did, 
Newstead undertook the task of trying to understand the methods used by ancient court reporters when recording chronological data. Only after these methods were understood did he try to apply them and see if a rational system in harmony could be found in the, quote, mysterious numbers of the Hebrew kings, unquote, as he titled the book that was the eventual result of his research. I might say that, by the way, this inductive report is maybe both Andy and I have something in common. Andy's undergraduate degree was in engineering. Those of us who've been trained, first of all, in the sciences, and of course, science reigns supreme in the public mm-hmm. mind today, we don't approach things like these people who are imposing this. We say, let's look at the data first. Well, let me get back to Tila. So that's kind of, I think, in the background. Mm-hmm. Tila looked at such issues as when the calendar year began, whether the first year of the king was counted twice, once for him and once for his predecessor who died in that year, whether some years of rain might be counted from the start of a cool regency, and whether the northern kingdom Israel used the same calendar and method of counting as did the southern kingdom Judah. In all this research, he did not try to force his preceptors on the data, but to examine how things are actually done in the ancient Near East, and then let the data shape our understanding of the methods that were followed in the biblical text. Contrary to all expectations of the critical scholars, some of whom Andy cited there earlier, Contrary to all their expectations, Tila found harmony in the abundant chronological data of the historical books of the Bible that deal with the kingdom period. The chronology he produced for this period with only slight modifications by later scholars has found wider acceptance in the scholar community than any of the chronologies of those who continue to follow the presupposition-based approach of the old liberal scholarship. Well, let me uh, just uh, mention briefly that I really like your explanation that that the proper method starts with the actual evidence as opposed to with, with, with uh, as we mentioned earlier, some of those uh, larger evolutionary hypotheses. And I think, uh, isn't it ironic that often uh, conservative biblical scholars like the three of us are viewed as less scholarly when, in fact, it is often uh, skeptics or, or uh, more liberal scholars that— uh, bring uh, some uh, extra-biblical presuppositions to the table and are, in fact, less guided by the evidence that that uh, hopefully we are. I would say a biblical word for that, amen. <laughs> <laughs> also, we are used to being ignored, yes. even though breakthroughs in biblical chronology have come from conservatives. I even read today something by Christopher Rolston, just was going by Albright's old date of 922, B.C. for the death of Solomon, just completely discredited, in, but it's old stuff. They ignore what conservative scholars have solidly done, and we're all used to that. Yes, yes. And well, to return, to return to the, uh, the question regarding the importance of, um, of Thiele's view, what, what has been his lasting contribution, uh, would you say, to the study of biblical chronology? Well, it did reveal those who followed Thiele, and, like myself and Andy, Mm-hmm. Um, that scholarship has dealt a severe blow to the presupposition approach of the anti-supernatural scholarship. Mm-hmm. So the study of biblical knowledge as practiced by conservative scholars is therefore part of a broader field called biblical or Christian apologetics. One distinctive of this branch of Christian apologetics is that the findings can, in many places, be subjected to falsifiable numerical analysis. Do the numbers work out in a rational system so that uh, compatible with solidly dated events in the ancient Near East, such as events described in the Assyrian eponym canon, or that are otherwise firmly fixed by competent modern scholarship? 
So one of the things is it's falsifiable. That's important for anybody who mm-hmm. studies the philosophy of science. Now, it should be widely known that based on the scriptural chronological data for the 9th and 8th centuries B.C., Keela declared that there was a slight disagreement with the commonly accepted Assyrian dates during that time. Looking further, he found that the most widely accepted interpretation of the Assyrian data was in error, vindicating the biblical data. His correction to the Assyrian eponym canon, derived as it was from the biblical data, is now accepted by virtually all Assyriologists. Mm. A similar development occurred in the field of Egyptology. Ever since Kenneth Kitchen published his book, Third Intermediate Period in Egypt, Egyptologists have used the synchronism of 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 2, and Tila's date for that event to make more exact the chronology of the Egyptian pharaohs backward to the 18th dynasty and forward to 690 B.C. The only quibble is over whether it was Pharaoh Shawshank's last year of reign or a previous year of reign when he invaded Judah. In other words, the biblical chronology is accepted by most Egyptologists as reliable and more exact than data from the records of Egypt, and they use the biblical data to refine their own Egyptian chronology. Now, we found that these sorts of things are generally known, not known among most critics of the Bible. I just mentioned Goldstein, uh-huh. just ignored it or Finkelstein, William Deaver, and so on. These people just reject out of hand without serious examination by contemporary, by conservative scholars, what has been happening in this field. Even among many evangelical scholars, there is a general lack of interest or acquaintance with many of these issues. And so we thought things like this might be of interest to include in our dialogue today. Yes, that's that's very interesting. Uh, let's now talk about some specific chronological issues related to the New Testament. Uh, The first relates to the dating of Jesus' birth. Um, First of all, we should tell our listeners uh, who may not be aware that because of a computation error in the uh, Middle Ages, I believe, the the birth of Jesus almost certainly did not take place in the year 1 AD, but uh, slightly earlier. Uh, Paul Meyer, the historian from the University of Michigan, represents the older consensus, in an essay he wrote on the date of the nativity, he argues on the assumption that the death of Herod the Great took place in 4 BC, that Jesus was likely born in around 5 BC. Of course, uh, obviously Herod must still have been alive when Jesus was born because he famously tried to kill all the infants in Bethlehem to wipe out any threat that may come to his rule from the newborn uh, king of the Jews. However, uh, Professor Steinman, you've argued in several of your publications that the 4 BC date for Herod's death is is probably inaccurate, and that therefore the date of 5 BC for Jesus' birth likewise would need to be adjusted. Can you please explain how Meyer and others arrived at those 4 and 5 BC dates in the first place, and then uh, tell our listeners why you think that the old consensus needs to be uh, adjusted and corrected. Okay, yeah. Well, Meyer is following a, a, a view that comes from the late 19th century mm-hmm. um, and uh, is reflected in a work by a man named uh, Emil Shearer, mm-hmm. uh, a very influential work, and, and he's just picking up on that. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting thing, though, that Meyer himself said many things in the ancient world depend on one witness and two make an event 
unimpeachable. Well, we have three ancient authors, Appian, Dio, Cassius, and Plutarch, that agreed in testifying that the Roman general uh, Ventidius was sent to the Levant to drive out the Parthians, and that he was there shortly after the Treaty of Misenum. Now, that treaty is well dated to the late summer of 39 BC, and there's an archaeological finding that it would date it more narrowly even to the second half of August 39 BC. The reason this is important is that these authors agree with Josephus' statements in both Josephus' war and in his antiquities that Herod the Great left Rome after the Senate appointed him as king of Judea, and this was after Vendita, I can't even say his name today, <laughs> Vendithius mm -hmm. had been sent to Syria to clear a beachhead against the Parthians. In other words, according to these three Roman authors and Josephus himself, Herod was appointed king sometime shortly after August of 39 BC. Mm -hmm. This means that the 37 years that Josephus says he reigned would end sometime in the year beginning in the fall of 2 BC. Let's keep in mind that um, in general, um, the Jews in this period, people in Judea, counted their year from the fall, not from the middle of winter as we do. So just to summarize what you've said so far, and I think it's, 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 it's quite clear, uh, to some extent you have to count backwards uh, from the year that he presumably died to the start of his reign. And, and you're telling us that, that uh, the start of his reign almost certainly would have been 39 BC, not in 41 or 42 BC. And so then if you uh, add the 37 years of his reign, according to Josephus, that would get you more to uh, 2 BC, not 4 or 5 BC. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. And that's that's the fall of 2 BC. That mm -hmm. year starts then. And then Herod would probably die uh, early in the spring that followed that. So we would date his death to 1 BC mm -hmm. instead oh, of the, uh, the yeah, normal 4 BC. Not, but probably more closer to the lunar eclipse that he mentioned just before his death, maybe late January is mm -hmm. what is a, a more, I think, more in keeping with what we're saying. Late January of 1 BC, after a total lunar eclipse that's mentioned in the writings of Josephus. Fascinating. Now, how, how do, uh, Andy, how do, uh, you know, people like, like Meyer and Schur, how do you, how do they account for the evidence that you just cited? Do they just ignore that or? Are they trying to explain it some other way? Well, Josephus also gives other indications of when Herod became king. And one of the things he does is he gives consular dates. That is, he tells who was the Roman consul in the year when Josephus was, I mean, when Herod was appointed. Mm -hmm. uh, these changed every year. And if you had a list mm -hmm. and a coordinated with the years, you could date things. And so they use Josephus. Um, reference to consuls when he was appointed, and then three years later when he conquered Judah. Uh, and what uh, I have tried to show, and Roger and I are, are working on uh, papers solidifying this, is Josephus made a mistake in his consular years. And so to rely on them and to ignore the rest of the data in Josephus and in these other ancient authors uh, is to actually um, make a mistake and repeat the mistake that Josephus made. 
but if you follow Josephus' consular years, uh, you don't quite end up at 4 BC. Uh, you end up actually at 3. And so then they also have to argue that uh, Herod counted his uh, reign or that Josephus reported his reign inclusively. And that is, he counted the first year, you know, kind of what we would call the zero year until you get one year elapsed. He counted that as one, mm-hmm. uh, kind of like if we would say from Tuesday to Tuesday is seven days. Well, if you count both Tuesdays, it's eight days. Mm-hmm. And so they're saying he counted inclusively, and that lets them subtract another year and get the 4 BC. Mm-hmm. Um, to counter this kind of reasoning, Roger and I have written an article that examines all the places in Josephus where he uses elapsed times for the reign of Herod. We found 13 cases, and we published them in a table at the end of the article, which will appear next year in the journal Bibliotheca Sacra. Mm -hmm. This article is basically an expansion of my 2009 article in Novum Testamentum, entitled, When Did Herod the Great Reign? In every case, we examined where Josephus used elapsed times and saw that he that using the so-called inclusive numbering that is necessary to get Herod dying in 4 BC does not work. On the other hand, if we assume that when Josephus said that Herod reigned 37 years, he meant it just as we would ordinarily expect the language to mean, then those cases work out just fine. So the point of the article is that you can't interpret Josephus 37 years to really mean 36 years, Mm -hmm. And the only problem is that Josephus gave the wrong consular year for Herod's appointment. If he had been appointed in late 40, he couldn't have gone directly to Syria afterwards, as Josephus says, because in late 40, Syria was still under enemy control and will continue that way until um, Ventidius, Ventidius arrived in late 39 BC. Thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. For more information, please visit the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern at cbs.mbts.edu. For further resources, please also visit biblicalfoundations.org. Please join us again next time at the Biblical Foundations podcast.